you and your family are safe and well. Do you have a moment? I have a request I need you to handle discreetly. I am currently busy in a prayer session, no calls. Just reply to my text, Pastor Ben Ice. That was not from me. And some of you did receive that, and you were wondering, and you talked to me. That was a scammer. That was someone probably from another country that got some information off the internet and was able to contact some of you. And some of you knew that was a scam because one person said, I knew you would never ask me for money. And what this person was doing is they wanted you to reply, and eventually they came to the place where they were asking that, that you would, I would send them, or they would send me, the scammer, money. This person was trying to deceive. And so just so you know, if anyone texts you in my name and they're asking you for money, you know, I'm in Africa and I can't get home, send me $500, that's a scam. I'll never ask you for money, I promise that. So never send me money personally, that will never be something I will ask. But those are deceptive scams intended to rip you off and steal your money. This is a serious, am I mic not on? Ah. There we go. You know what, I appreciate that. Ah, that, I felt like I wasn't on for some reason. Have I not been on the whole morning? Okay. Well, next time if I'm not on, you gotta wave your hand at me, okay? So, because I, I wanna be heard because this is God's word. But anyways, this is uh, the text that is read for you, for those who didn't hear, <laughs> was a text that was sent out by a, a scammer and he was trying to rip off people in our church. Fortunately, as far as I know, nobody in the church was, uh, fell for this, and nobody sent this scammer money. But deception is a major problem in our world. It's one of the most serious problems, I think, that we face in the world today. Deception is the mind being tricked, so a person is led to believe something is true when, in fact, it is a lie. And so a salesman might come to you to sell you a car, and he says, listen, the best mechanic in town, check this car out, I got a good deal for you. And you go home and you find out that the car's broken and there's problems. He deceived you. Or maybe you're watching the news media and there's deception on there and we famously call that what? Fake news. And you have politicians that deceive by telling you lies to get into office and then they keep telling you lies while they're in office. But the worst deception is spiritual deception. Deception caused pain and suffering to come into the world in Genesis chapter 3. Jesus warned of deception in Matthew chapter 24, verse 4. Jesus said, see that no one deceives you. So Jesus saw it as a serious problem. The New Testament authors warned over and over, be not deceived. In fact, in Paul's last letter that he wrote, he said in these last days that deception would get worse and worse, evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. This is a reality in our world. Deception is a problem. But the greatest deception in our world is in regard to a person's eternal destiny. Where will you wake up when you die? And the Bible teaches us that there will be many people who will die and they will wake up and they will find out that they believed a lie their whole life. They believed a lie and were deceived. So that's why Paul wrote our text here this morning. 
Would you open your Bibles up to 1 Corinthians chapter 6? We're going to look in verses 6 or verses 9 through 11. And Paul wrote these verses specifically to teach us that we must consider if we are being deceived in regard to our spiritual condition. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, to teach us that we can be deceived. And because we can be deceived, we need to examine our life with God's truth. In fact, if you look down in verse number 9, verse number 9, you can see this command. Verse 9 says, Or do you not know? that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. The only command here in these three verses is found right there. Do not be deceived. Deceived is the Greek word, the Greek verb, plonao, which means to lead astray, to, to lead someone off the path. Think about a, a child who's in a grocery store and the mom is engrossed in the, you know, the product. She's looking at the butter or the milk or whatever, and she's not paying attention to her child. And there's a person who has a piece of candy, a man maybe, and says, hey, little child, here's a piece of candy. And that child comes over and is led astray, is deceived to go with that man, thinking that he or she will get a little piece of candy but taken away from his or her mom. That's deception. It's being led away, led astray. And Paul was saying, to this church, be careful, let me warn you that you can be led away, or maybe you are already led away. You can easily believe lies and be deceived. And Paul presented two truths for us this morning that he wants us to consider, two truths that will reveal if our hearts are deceived. And the first truth is the truth for the unrighteous, the truth about the unrighteous, and the next is the truth about the transformed. Would you look down at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, and then would you stand with me with your Bibles, and I'm going to read this out loud. And as we listen to God's word, we can honor the Lord as we trust his word. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, or, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you are washed, you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This morning, the Lord wants us to consider if we are deceived. Because you can be easily deceived, you and I need to consider the truths of God's word and to examine our lives with God's truth. And the first truth is the truth about the unrighteous, and that is those who live in unrepentance will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who live in unrepentance 
will not inherit the kingdom of God. Look at verse number 9. The scripture says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he says, Do not be deceived. Now, Paul asks this question, Do you not know, six times in chapter 6, ten times in 1 Corinthians. And do you not know is a question that is always followed by a truth statement. And the point of the question was to remind them of a truth that he taught at one time, and he wanted them to apply to this situation. And, and we do this sometimes. Maybe you're a, a mom, or maybe you have a mom, or you remember when you had a mom, and you were in the kitchen, and you took the milk out of the refrigerator, and you put it on the, the counter there, and you shut the refrigerator, and then you left and went in the other room, and your mom says, do you not know that you're supposed to put the milk away in the refrigerator? And it's not like you didn't know that, right? It's not like you, it's not like there was a, this is a new, it's like a revelation of like, oh, wow, I didn't know that. No, it, it's reminding you of something, maybe you're ignoring a truth, or maybe, maybe you actually think your mom's your slave, and she's supposed to do that for you. That's not true, right? And so, so she's saying to you, hey, do you not know that you're supposed to do this? Like, let me remind you of this truth, and go put that away, right? And that's what he's doing here. He's saying, let me remind you of something that, that is true, that you know, and let, let me apply it to this situation. So what was the situation? What, why did he need to remind them about this well, because there were people in the church who were living in sin and they were not repenting. Remember in chapter 5, there was a man in the church who called himself a Christian, who was a member of the church, who was sleeping with his stepmom. He was living in an immoral life. In chapter 6 here, we learned last week, there were members who were ripping each other off. They were defrauding each other. Then they were going to court and suing each other. In fact, if you look down in verse number 8, you can see this is where this text concluded last week, chapter 6, verse 8. Paul says, but you yourself, speaking to the church, wrong and defraud even your own brothers, even your own brothers and sisters in Christ, he's saying. The word defraud means to rip off, to, to take from. And so that, what was, that was happening between members of the church. And, and notice in verse 8 there, that word wrong, he says, you were doing wrong, you yourselves wrong and defraud. That word there in verse 8 is a verb. Then if you look down in verse 9, you can see the word unrighteous. And that, that's the adjective form of that word wrong. And so, for instance, in verse 8, it says, uh, verse 8, the word wrong, and verse 9, the word unrighteous, it shares the same root word. So in verse 8, it's a verb, and in verse 9, it's an adjective. But the point is, there actually are the same root words in Greek. And that's important because Paul was speaking in verse 8 to the church, and in verse 9, he's saying, this is what the world's like. And so you actually could read verses 8 and 9 like this. So look at verse 8. You could read it like this. You yourselves act unrighteously and defraud, and then verse 9, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Or you could read it like this. You yourselves wrong and defraud, do you not know that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God. So you see how those, both of those are linked together. And Paul was speaking to the members of church in, in verse 8 and saying, you are wronging each other. And in verse 9, he's saying, 
the people of this world are the ones who wrong each other and they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And if you are living that way, if you're living unrighteously, if you're living as a wrongdoer, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's pretty serious. It's a pretty serious admonition that Paul gives to them. What he's saying here, he's saying if you continue in your sin and you don't repent, you can call yourself a Christian, you can come to church every Sunday, you can say, I said this prayer, you can write something in the front of your Bible, it doesn't matter. If you continue in your sin and you don't repent, then you are, a verse 9, you are a person who's living in unrighteousness and you will not inherit the kingdom of God. What are those sins of the wrongdoers, of of the unrighteous that he's talking about in verse 9? Well, he answers that question in verse 10, 9 and 10. He gives a list of those sins. So let's just talk through some of those. What are those sins that a person in the church might actually continue in, they might not repent of, or what are the sins that people in the world continue in and they don't repent of? What are those sins that cause us to not inherit the kingdom of God? Well, the first one is sexual immorality. In English, the word immoral basically means not moral. It's it's kind of the idea is that you are outside the bounds of morality. You're outside the bounds of what is good and right. And every society has boundaries for morality, right? They have things they believe are wrong and things they believe are right. The other day, we were in a public area, and there was a bunch of young people around us, and... There were so many foul words that were said, it was just insane, like to hear it. And, and obviously, they didn't think it was wrong, it was immoral for them to say those things. But what's interesting, I bet if one of those persons would have said a racial slur very loud, I bet everyone would have turned and saw that as wrong, right? Because in our society, there's a general idea that that saying something that's racist is really bad, but if you take the Lord's name in vain, you say some other bad words, then those aren't really that bad, or maybe not. it's not bad at all. It's not okay. It's okay. The question is, 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 in a society, who gets to decide what's moral and what's immoral? Who gets to decide what's right and what's wrong? Well, the answer to that is God, right? God is the one who created us, and therefore, he is the, the judge and ruler of all. He gets to decide what's in bounds and out of bounds, what's moral and what's immoral. It's not, it's not society. It's not government. It's not a consensus of scientists. It's not celebrities. It's not the court system. It's not even a democratic popular vote. It's God and God alone. And his word tells us what is true, what is good, what is moral, and what is immoral, what is wrong. And so what we see here in verses 9 and and 10 are a list of, of sins, what God considers immoral. And in verse 9 here, he's talking about sexual immorality. That is, sexual immorality is living outside the sexual boundaries of what God says is good and right and moral. What are those boundaries for, for morality, for sexual morality? Well, what is the boundaries? It's marriage between a man and a woman. God says sexual intimacy and pleasure in marriage is holy, it's pure, it's good, it's righteous. But anything outside of that, any sexual indulgence outside of marriage is sin, is wrong, it's unrighteous. 
God was the one who ordained that a man and a woman should come together in marriage and enjoy that intimate relationship. That is a wonderful gift from God. Last night, we had a, a fire in our fire pit, and so we have some you know, stones that are around it and some logs in there, and it was, it was a lot of fun. We had uh, cooked marshmallows. The fire warmed us when it was cold. When it got dark, there was uh, the fire um, lit up, and we could see, and we sang some songs. We just had a really good time around the fire. Fire can be joyful. It can be pleasurable. It can be enjoyable. Like We enjoyed the blessing of that fire as long as that fire stayed in the fire pit. But then you have boys that like to play in the fire, right? And they, what is it about sticks? They can't just stay in there. They have to poke it. It has to catch on fire. They like to bring that fire out, wave it around, right? I mean, when fire goes outside the fire pit, that's when it's dangerous, especially when it goes near, near people's faces, right? And it can burn you. When we were in South Carolina, if you don't know this, in South Carolina, a lot of the grass there goes dormant in the winter, which means it turns brown. And uh, one time we had a fire pit, and part of the grass caught on fire, and it started to spread very quickly. I mean, we lived in a neighborhood. There was fences all around us. There was houses all around us, and it got really scary quickly. And the point is, when the fire is outside of the fire, you know, fire pit, it can get out of control. When it's in the fire pit, it's a blessing. When it's outside, it can actually be very dangerous. It might be kind of exciting to, to wave around that stick on fire, but it can turn very quickly into something that's very dangerous and something that actually is very hurtful. I think fire is a helpful example for us as we consider this topic because sexual intimacy and desire, like fire, is a gift from God if it stays within the boundaries of marriage. But outside of marriage, it may be fun, it may be pleasurable, but eventually it hurts, it destroys, and it definitely leads to hell. Sexual immorality includes sins of the mind and the imaginations, sins of the eyes and desires, and sins of the body that seeks fulfillment outside of marriage. The next one you have is idolaters. We automatically think of someone who bows down to an idol. But really, an idolater is anything, or an idol is anything that we honor above God. And so we can be idolaters. We can actually uh, exalt family and, and, and maybe relationships and money and maybe even our children above God. And the truth is, most of us struggle with the idol of self. We like to exalt God, ourselves above God. Then you have adulterers. Adultery is a specific type of sexual immorality. Adultery is a husband or a wife breaking the marriage covenant. Then you have the next phrase, nor men who practice homosexuality. Again, this is a specific type of sexual immorality. Now, I think it's interesting how the Lord times the teaching of his word. If you're not familiar with our church, our church preaches expositionally, which means we take books of the Bible and we just go verse by verse and whatever, wherever we're at in the Bible, wherever we're at in that book of the Bible, we believe that the Holy Spirit has led us to that text to teach us about that for this time. And so in God's providence, we're teaching on this text this month, and we're on this phrase right here. This is a month our government has deemed to be the homosexual pride month. And it's everywhere, right? It's in the movies. It's even in cartoons. 
celebrities and social media influencers and educators and politicians are encouraging this. I mean, you go to all these stores, there's flags flying in these stores. We have a, a quote-unquote church down the road who's flying a flag celebrating this. And not only do they want you to celebrate it, they want you to affirm and believe that lifestyle is, is okay. According to whitehouse.gov, this week President Biden plans to sign an executive order, pretty certain it's this week, and it's in regard to this topic. And this, he, they basically lump uh, what we're doing right now, which is teaching God's word, teaching that God can save and change with the gospel of Jesus Christ. They kind of lump that into a bunch of other kind of crazy therapies to try to change someone's desires and someone's actions. And so they call all of that conversion therapy. And there are some crazy things people have done, like shock therapy and, and uh, isolating someone and yelling at them, and those are all wrong. In fact, the truth is, anyone that tries to change themselves is not going to be able to change yourself. You can't change yourself only one person can truly change the heart, and that's God himself. But this is what the website says. It says, conversion therapy is a discredited and dangerous practice that seeks to suppress or change the sexual orientation or gender identity of LGBTQI plus people. Kind of keeping all those straight is kind of difficult. And I want to say that there are some crazy ideas out there. Um, but this is our idea of, uh, the scripture's idea of biblical change is lumped into this as well. And this is a sad day for our country. This will be a sad week for our country. Only God can change the heart of a person through Christ by the Holy Spirit. And what we're talking about here this morning is not my opinion. This is not something on Monday where I got up and I thought, okay, this Sunday, what am I going to preach on? Oh, this is it. This is the month. Listen, I would not have picked this <laughs> for this week. Not that I'm chicken or anything like that. It's just like this isn't what I, you, know, you plan to preach on. But this is God's word, and God's word is true. And we want to, we want to say what's true. This is not, what we're going to talk about in a second, is not a dangerous message. It's actually a message of delivery. It's actually a, a message of good news. It's that God wants to save. God doesn't want to destroy. God doesn't want to hurt. That's what Satan does. God is a God of truth. God saves. It's interesting, though, though a lot of people who support homosexuality use the Bible to support their claims. In fact, on June 9th, 2022, this is two weeks ago, Representative Ted, I think it's Lou is how you say his name, the congressman in California, he stood up on the floor of the House of Representatives in Washington, and this is what he said. I just thought I would now recite for you what Jesus said about homosexuality. And then he didn't say anything for 20 minutes. And his point was that Jesus doesn't say anything about homosexuality. And he's wrong with, in two major ways. Number one, Jesus in Matthew chapter 19 very clearly laid out what morality is, what sexual morality is, what is good and right in God's eyes. And, God, and that is that God created two genders, male and female. He taught them that God's design was for a man and a woman to come together in marriage and only in marriage are they to be united sexually as one. And that's what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 19. So he definitely taught that. But also Jesus taught that homosexuality was a sin in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Do you realize when we read that scripture here this morning, this is Jesus' teaching. You say, well, Pastor Ben, I thought Paul the apostle wrote that. 
Yeah, it's Paul the what? Apostle. And apostle, apostles were taught directly by Jesus. And so when an apostle wrote down something, what he's writing down is not his own ideas. He's writing down the, the teachings of Jesus. In fact, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and you can see this over here, just kind of a, a glimpse at this. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 12. And he says this a number of times. I'm just going to point out one time. He says this. He says, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord. So he's going to distinguish, I'm going to give something in my letter that's not from Jesus, it's from me. Just, just as kind of a side note here. And the point is this, he's saying like, what I'm teaching, this whole letter is the teachings of Jesus. These are the teachings of Jesus. So if you want to know what Jesus has to say about the topic, read this. And if, he, if it's not the teachings of Jesus, he's going to say, by the way, this is not Jesus, this is me that's saying this. And so when we read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, we're reading the teachings of Jesus. And what's interesting about this is it all goes back to your view of the Bible. God's word, the Bible, is God's means to communicate truth about himself and what he says is moral. And the world attacks the Bible. They attack the authority of the Bible. The Bible doesn't have authority over me. Well, this is God's word to us. So yes, it does. They attack the sufficiency of the Bible. The Bible doesn't address issues like this. Actually, it does. God's word is sufficient for even these areas. Well, God's word isn't accurate. They attack the inerrancy of Scripture. No, that's not true. God's word is 100% true and accurate. And the question is not, what does our culture say? The question is not, what do, I, what do I feel to be true? What do I want to be true? The question is this. For every person, the question is this. What does God's word actually say is true? And this is what God's word says. So let's talk about what the original language teaches about this phrase, men who practice homosexuality. As you know, our English uh, translation of the New Testament is a translation of the Greek New Testament. So this phrase, men who practice homosexuality, is made up of two Greek words which really distinguish two different sins. But because the, the sins are so similar in nature, the ESV translators combine the two words into one idea. In fact, if you have an ESV translation, you can see there's a footnote at the very bottom, and it says, the two Greek terms translated by this phrase refer to the passive and active partners in a consensual homosexual act. So what they're saying is there's two Greek words behind this. I don't think they... The ESV translators did us a great service by doing this. I think it would have been better if they would have translated it in, in ways like the Legacy Standard Bible, which is a new translation now, or the NASB 1995, or CSB, or NIV. And if, you have, if you have any of those translations, I think they do a better job in translating this. So let's talk about those two words. And I think it's important to, to park on this because a lot of people say the Bible doesn't teach this kind of stuff. And so we want to definitely be clear about what God's Word actually does teach the first Greek word behind this phrase is malakos. Malakos means effeminate. This is the idea of, of a boy acting like a girl. In the Roman culture, some young men would sell themselves to another man. The younger male would play the part of a female. According to a commentator, William Barclay, most of the Roman Caesars had these type of young men in their courts and therefore in their bedrooms. What would that look like today? Well, it could include what we modernly call transvestite or transgender. This is a, a man or a boy dressing up like a woman. 
or a male or a boy identifying as a girl. And also, I think on the opposite side of that, a girl or woman who tries to identify as a male. And with that would include the, the homosexual activity within that gender role playing. The second Greek word of this phrase, men who practice homosexuality, is um, arase, uh, arse koites, arse koites, which is really two compound words. It's male and to lay down with, male to lay down with. So the idea is a male lying intimately with another male, or the idea of a female going to bed with a female. And so this is a clear reference to homosexual activity. And what God's word is saying here is that those types of sins, those types of activities are sin. This is God's word. We believe what God's word says is true. Now, some people look at texts like this and automatically they have a great hate in their heart for people that practice these things. This text of scripture does not teach us to hate people. And there are many Christians, there's, there's many pastors that get in the pulpit. I read an article, and I don't know if it's true, can't believe everything on the news. I read an article about a pastor in Texas who said that those who practice homosexuality should be shot. That's wrong for him to do that. The Bible does not teach us to hate these people, to scream at them, to yell vile words at them. That's abhorrent to God. In fact, later on, we're going to look at the word reviler. I think that's wrapped up in the word reviler. Like if you're a reviler, if you're going out and saying hateful things about people, then you have your own judgment before God. We don't hate the world, no matter the sin. We offer hope to the world. God so loved the world, he sent his one and only son. And remember this, always remember this, that such were some of you, which means we were once in the world and we practiced sins like this. We lived and indulged in these types of sins. Aren't you so glad that God loves us and he sent his son to die for us? And the message to the world is that there's hope that he can save. God saves, God changes. And I think when we look at something like this, it's so easy to think all those people out there but let's be honest, church, that some of us in here are struggling with these desires. And so when we talk about people in a hateful way and say, those people, there's some of us in here that are struggling with that and need help with that. And you're ostracizing people by speaking in that way. We definitely call sin, sin, but we call the Savior, the Savior, and call upon people to call upon Jesus to save them. God's message is that he can save, he can change. Let's also remember that this is not the only sin in this list. There are other sins. Look at verse number 10. He says, nor thieves. That is taking something that's not yours. A week and a half ago, I was giving the gospel to a guy and I went through some of the commandments and this was one of them, thou shalt not steal and and he says, oh, I've never stolen something. I said, have you ever gone to a, um, a restaurant and you got a, the water cup? And instead of getting water, you got soda? He's like, yeah. I was like, thou shalt not steal. There you go. You got it right there. We've all stolen. Nor the greedy. That's the idea of covetousness. This is a compound word as well. Have more. It's the idea that you want more. You're not content with what God has given you. If I could only have that, if I could have that house, right? Or if I could have that car, or if I could live in that state, 
No one in here covets that, right? But that's the idea. Like, you're like, if I could just have that, then I would be satisfied, then I would be happy. You ever committed that sin? People like to pick it on the one about uh, homosexuality, but I don't see people picketing on this. But I think definitely all of us could agree that we struggle with covetousness, especially if you have social media, right? How about nor drunkards? This is using a substance like alcohol or maybe drugs or, or weed to control your mind and your emotions. This is going to a substance like this for escape, trusting that that substance is going to bring you peace. Nor revilers. This is a person who uses speech, their mouth, to hurt people. A reviler might yell, they might mock, they might belittle, they might cut down with snide remarks. Nor swindlers. This is a person who will rip someone off for his own benefit. And what's Paul's point in listing all these sins? He's reminding them that those who practice those sins and continue to live in unrepentance will not inherit the kingdom of God. In fact, he says it twice in there, right? I mean, you look at that and you go, is that true? Is what he's saying true? What's the answer? Yes, God's word is true. And this is what he says. How do we know this is what is true? Well, the Bible teaches that we are all sinners. We're all sinners by nature. We're born that way. We're sinners by choice. And all of us deserve to be cast out of God's presence for eternity. And this isn't just in this text. This is all over the scripture. In fact, this is one of the last scriptures in the Bible. Revelation 21.8 lists a lot of these types of sins. Includes liars in there. And it says that they will have their portion in a lake that burns with fire and sulfur. This is the second death. In other words, this is the death that lasts forever. This is the separation that never, ever ends. And how many of us, as you went through that list, you could point to some sins that you committed in there? I think all of us have sins. All of us, I don't think. I know all of us have sinned against God. So how many of us deserve this right here? How many, how many of us deserve this eternal torment, this eternal hell for our sin? It's all of us. And so what hope do we have? What, what hope do we have to escape this? What hope do we have to inherit eternal life? What hope do we have to enter into God's kingdom, into God's presence forever? The truth is you have no hope in yourself. You have no hope in your religion. You have no hope in your own works. The only hope you have is for a supernatural work in your soul called salvation, what we also call regeneration. In fact, you can see that in verse number 11. He says, and such were some of you. Notice the past tense in verse 11. Such were some of you. This is the imperfect tense. It's the idea, this, is, this was a continual action in the past, but you don't do that continual action anymore. In the past, you lived in unrepentance. You indulged in that sin. You didn't care, but now you don't indulge in that sin anymore. And it's not saying you never sin. It's saying that's not the habit of your life. That's not the pattern of your life. You're not living habitually in those sins. You're living a life of repentance and faith. You've turned from that type of sin. You've turned in faith to Jesus. And when you do fall into that sin, when you do commit those sins, you repent and you turn back to Christ. That is not the pattern of your life to live in unrepentance. 
And so here's the truth about the unrighteous. Those who live in unrepentance will not inherit the kingdom of God. And again, this is not saying that believers will never struggle with sin, but believers don't continue in sin. They don't continue in unrepentance. Believers are changed by God and they are continually being changed by God. And so, because you can be deceived, you need to examine your life with God's truth. And so the first truth is, those who live in unrepentance will not inherit the kingdom of God. And here's the second truth. This is the truth for those who are transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those who have been supernaturally cleansed through Jesus by the Spirit will be changing and will inherit God's kingdom. Look at verse number 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Notice those three words in verse 11. Washed, sanctified, justified. All three of these words describe a one-time action by God to purify a soul from sin and condemnation. To be washed is to be cleaned, like a, like a little boy that goes out and he gets all dirty and his mom brings him in and puts him in the bathtub and washes him up. To be sanctified is to be made holy, like the man that had leprosy and he was banned from the city. He was pushed outside of society. He couldn't come and worship with everyone. And Jesus healed him of leprosy and this man could now enter into the worship with God's people. To be justified is to be declared righteous. It's like a criminal who is guilty in all accounts, but his debt is therefore paid in full, and he is declared free without guilt. And the problem that we have as we look through this is that we are not clean. Like sin has polluted us. We are not holy. Wrongdoing has defiled us. No person is just. Transgressions have condemned us as guilty. And so in ourselves, there's nothing we can do about this. And so our only hope is for what? For God to do something. And that's why what you see with all of these verbs, these are passives. In other words, this is something God is doing. And these are also actions that are a point in time, at a time that God chooses to work in our life. And that is that time where God cleanses our sinful soul. He makes the the defiled soul holy. He declares the guilty sinner righteous. And when does that happen? Like When is that point in time where God supernaturally, by his grace, reaches down and saves a soul that's at regeneration? That's when we're born again. That's when a person believes the gospel. They, they, They recognize their sin as sin. They confess it's sin. They believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior, and they trust in him, and God resurrects their soul to life, and they are washed, they are sanctified, they are justified. This is the supernatural work that God did to Mary Magdalene. Remember her? An immoral woman, and Jesus saved her. In a moment, he washed, sanctified, and justified her by the power of the Holy Spirit. This was a supernatural work in Zacchaeus, who was a greedy, thieving tax collector. In a moment, Jesus Christ saved him. He washed him. He sanctified him. He justified him. And he said, salvation has come to you, Zacchaeus, into your house. 
This was a supernatural work in Paul, who was this self-righteous religious zealot on the road to Damascus, on the road of Damascus, and Jesus saved him in a moment, washed him, sanctified him, justified him. This was a supernatural work God did in a person called Dr. Rosia Butterfield. You ever heard of that person? Maybe you want to look it up online. I read about her this week. She was a professor of English at Syracuse University in the 1990s. She was an outspoken lesbian activist until in 1990 she heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and she came to faith in Christ. She became a Christian. And when she turned in faith to Christ, she was washed, she was sanctified, she was justified through Christ by the Holy Spirit. And today, she's a pastor's wife and a full-time mother. God changed her and continues to change her. God's work to, to wash and to sanctify and justify here is a positional change that takes place at conversion. In other words, it's positional. You go from sinner to saint. You go from rebel to son, from criminal to innocent. This is God's view of us. This is, this is what our position in Christ. And how is this possible? How is it possible that this can happen? Even though we're sinners, God declares us saints. Even though that we're, we're rebels, God makes us sons. How is it possible? Well, he tells us at the end of verse 11, and it's through the work of our triune God, What's interesting at the end of verse 11 is you see here the Trinity working. Notice it's in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's the Son of God, by the Spirit, that's the Spirit of God, and then of our God, that's God the Father. So here you see this Trinitarian work. If you remember back, I think it was March, I preached a series of messages on the Trinity. And if you're curious about that, you can go back and, and listen to those. But what you see here is that God saves us as a triune God. There's one God, there's one uh, being called God, and he exists eternally in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And God the Father is the one who plans. Jesus is the one who did the work, and the Spirit is the one who applies it. So when you see in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, what you're seeing is that the name represents the, the attributes and works of that person. How did Jesus provide salvation? How did God the Son provide salvation? Well, he came to this earth. He lived a righteous, he lived a holy, he lived a sinless life. He died on the cross as our substitute. He was treated on that cross as unholy, as impure, as guilty, even though he was without sin. He died in our place. He was buried and he rose again three days later. And he did all that to provide salvation for us. So it's through Jesus Christ, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, he stands now at the Father's side and he is there interceding. He is there calling us to himself. What about the Spirit? What's the Spirit's work? Well, the Spirit is the one who applies Christ's work the soul of the believer. This is called the new birth. This is called regeneration. This is called the baptism of the Spirit. This is, this is the Holy Spirit taking the work of Christ and applying it to a soul that believes in him. Remember in John chapter 3, Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again of the Holy Spirit. That's what this is talking about. And he says you can't enter into the kingdom of heaven unless you're what? You're born again. 
There must be this, this supernatural work in your life where the Spirit takes your dead soul, takes your soul that loves its sin, takes its soul that loves itself, and changes it by applying the work of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection to that soul, so that soul now comes alive, so that soul is now filled with grace, that soul is washed of all of its sin, that soul is declared righteous and holy before God. And when that happens, when God saves us, the Holy Spirit dwells in that soul forever. When, when God saves us, Jesus in heaven forever intercedes for us. When God saves us, the Father eternally cares for that soul as his own son or daughter. And so the big question is this, how do I have God's gift applied to me? How am I able to, if I'm without Christ, how am I able to have forgiveness and this cleansing? Well, Jesus gave the answer. This was his message. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. This is what we're talking about, inheriting the kingdom of God. What do we need to do? Repent and believe the gospel have a change of thinking about your sin. Instead of saying, I love my sin and, and, I, and I love my own way, say my sin is abhorrent, my way is wrong, and then believe the gospel, believe the good news about Jesus Christ. And so this text here, scripture, is not just for those of the world. He's actually writing this for the church. Now think about that. Again, remind us, remind yourself, why is it that he's writing this for the church? Why would Paul need to remind the church of these truths? Well, remember, there were people in the church who were living in immorality, yet they were claiming to be believers. There were people in the church who were defrauding and hurting other people, yet they continued to claim to be Christians. There were people who were living in unrepentance in the church, and they thought they were still on their way to heaven. And Paul is saying here, a person who lives in unrepentance, I don't care if you're in the church, I don't care if you're outside of the church. He's saying if you live in unrepentance, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so what he's saying here is he's saying that God is the one who saves us. And when God saves a person, you are a such were person. That's in the past. Again, it's not that you don't struggle with your sin. It's, it's not that you don't ever sin again. But it's like your continual life of unrepentance is not a part of your present. That's a part of your past. You are a such were person. A person who continues in their sin is not a such were. They are a continue to be person. And so God is saying here, you need to repent over your sin. If you are a church member here, you're at Lighthouse Bible Church, and you are indulging your sin, and you don't care, you're living in unrepentance, you should fear what this text promises right here. You see, verses 9 and 10 is about repentance. Believers don't continue to live that way. They repent. And verse 11 is all about faith. Believers place their full faith in Jesus Christ. And so here's the warning for the church. You might be a member of this church. You might have said to yourself and other people, I've been a Christian my whole life. You might even be a Sunday class teacher. You might be a notable person in your, this church. But you, listen to this, you might be on your way to hell. Now, some people hear that and say, how can you say that? Isn't it once saved, always saved, Pastor Ben? Now, listen to this. The answer to that is no. It's once saved, truly changed is what it is. 
Once saved, truly changed. Or you could say it another way, once saved, progressively transformed. And it's not that I don't believe in eternal security, okay? And it's not that Paul doesn't believe in eternal security. I, I do believe when you get the gift of salvation, it's eternal. It's, it never ends. But those who claim to be saved but continue to live in unrepentance need to consider maybe you're not truly saved. And that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to get you to consider your spiritual condition. You see, verses 9 and 10, God was warning those who claimed to be Christians but lived in their sin and didn't repent that you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You won't inherit all the blessings that Christ promises for you when you die. So what should you do? If you're truly a believer, what should you do? Repent and believe. You might be listening right now and you think, you know what, Pastor Ben, I've not really heard that before. I don't think that's true. (laughs) I would just ask you this question. Do you think maybe you could be deceived? Isn't that the whole point what Paul is saying here? Do not be deceived. Here's the reality is that there are people, maybe in our church, but definitely in churches around the world and in America, there are people who, who privately, sometimes publicly, live in sin and don't repent and turn to Christ. And they think, well, I prayed a prayer when I was a kid, so I'm covered. Or I have it written in the front of my Bible. See, that's how I know I'm a believer. You know how you actually know if you're a believer? If you believe. That's how you know. If you say, okay, I sinned. That was really bad. Lord, I confess it to you. I confess it to whoever else I need to confess it to. And Jesus Christ, I want to follow you in integrity. And I trust that, that you are the one who died for me. And I'm trusting in your work on the cross for me. So what he's wanting us to do here is examine our life with God's truth. Examine your life with the truth about the unrighteous. Those who live in unrepentance will not inherit the kingdom of God. But those who have been supernaturally cleansed, those who have been born again through Jesus by the Spirit, they are the ones who will be changing. The Spirit will be at work in your life and you will inherit the kingdom of God. When God saves you, he positionally places you as holy and just and righteous in the eyes of God. But we still struggle with sin. We're still going to have the battle in our life. The desires for sin do not go away. We are still flesh and blood. But there's a big difference. We have the Holy Spirit within our hearts. We have the word of God that feeds our souls. And so we are positionally his children. We're positionally saints. We're holy ones made holy by God. And based upon that, he is changing us to be more holy. He's changing us to be more sanctified. And so what happens when we fall into sin, when we give in to those desires, what do we do? We say, Lord, I am sorry. Lord, I confess that as sin, and you come to him for grace in time of need. Now, sometimes you can go through verses like verses 9 and 10, 
and you feel the weight of that sin. I don't know if you felt that. I know this week I've been meditating on those verses. I went to Galatians and meditated on those sins in Galatians, sins of the flesh. And honestly, I had a couple times this week where I thought to myself, am I a believer? <laughs> you know, because you have that weight of sin that comes upon your soul. And you can actually ask yourself the question, and I think that's actually not a bad thing to have happen. Because then what do you do after that? When, when you have that question that comes upon your soul, what do you do? And that really tells you if you're a believer or not. Because what do you do? If you believe, you go what? Well, I can't cleanse myself. I, I have done what's wrong. And the only one who can forgive me and who has done the work to forgive me is who? Jesus Christ. And honestly, that's when you go to verse 11, and that's where that's a blessing. Because we go, there's a promise for us. We're washed. We're sanctified. We're justified, not in the name of Ben Ice, not in the works of Ben Ice, but through Jesus Christ, by the Spirit of God, hallelujah. And so if you're struggling with assurance of salvation, go to that verse and hold on to that verse and turn from your sin and turn to Christ and trust that he is the one who saves by his work. Or maybe you're in here today and maybe you're not a believer. Maybe this is the first or first of many times, maybe, maybe you've heard this a couple times, but you know you're not a believer. Christ calls you to come to him today to repent and believe the good news. And listen, he sent Jesus to save. And he can save you this morning. Maybe you're a believer, or you claim to be a believer, and you're asking yourself, you know, I don't know if I'm a believer. Maybe you're living in, in hidden sin in your life. I would bet, in a, in a group like this, that there's probably someone in this room who's living in hidden sin. And this message is for you right now. And you should look at this text of Scripture, and you should ask yourself, am I going to inherit eternal life? Am I going to inherit the kingdom of God? And if you can walk out of the service and go home next week or next month and not care, then I think the answer probably for you is you will not inherit the kingdom of God. But if you really have the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your heart, then you're going to say, I need to do the right thing. I need to confess my sin and turn to Jesus Christ. Let's pray to the Lord.